um, being, I think, not excessively holy people, watch a fair amount of TV in our house. I like watching TV. And we read a good deal, too. But I know one of the things that we end up watching, maybe more than anything else at the uh, 12 and under level, is we watch an awful lot of nature shows. And so uh, the Kratt brothers, for example, have been really popular in our house for an awful long time. Even when I was a kid, Zabumafu was on. These guys have been doing this for a really long time. And uh, about a decade ago, they filmed an episode. And every episode, if you've ever seen that show before, you know, focuses on a particular kind of animal. And so some weeks, it's all about lions or rhinoceroses or dolphins or whatever it may be. But this particular episode, I remember vividly watching it with the kids because it was all about snakes. And I hate snakes, right? It's the only reason why I reject the end of Mark 16, right? The longer ending. And we, we haven't gone Pentecostal. I just can't do the snakes, right? The only reason why. They're creepy. Uh, you know, I've read the opening chapters of Genesis. These are really vile things. They have no legs for a reason. God really dislikes snakes as well. So, we're watching this episode about snakes, and the whole episode is like a body-positive episode for snakes. They're not slimy, they're not creepy, they're not harmful, they're just like any other creature. We should love and appreciate them and welcome them into our homes, and the episode goes on and on and on and on, right? Uh, I remember thinking, okay, uh, I've, I've seen garter snakes before, and we have those little pencil-thin green snakes, sometimes in our yard we'll see those, little red ones. I think I've only seen a couple of copperheads. I've seen some big black snakes, but this seemed like ill advice. Let's not love snakes too much, okay? And I felt validated because it really was only about a year or two later that I saw that that episode had been banned in the nation of Australia. And in fact, they had gone through several children's shows and had banned episodes about snakes and about spiders and about other, I don't know, Tasmanian devils, whatever creepy things they have in Australia, uh, because they didn't want children to live under the impression that these were undangerous animals and that we could approach them without abandon. In fact, they wanted to convey the exact opposite message, that where we live in this particular region of the globe, there are an awful lot of really terrible, deadly, awful, vile snakes who could kill you and would do so just as soon as looking at you. Don't go near the snakes. Fear the snakes. If you see one, run away. Find your mom or dad in our house, hopefully mom, and let them know so that the snake can be dispatched as quickly as possible. This is the agenda that we want you to embrace. It's not an altogether different lesson that we derive here from 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are some people who have been convinced, and this is true even in the modern world, that if you dare to preach about Jesus Christ and you use his name and you read from his word, that you are automatically trustworthy. And that you are not slimy, you are not scaly, that you are obviously favorable to approach. But that's not true. And in fact, Paul goes to extreme measures in the first nine verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 to convey to you the exact same message that the Australian government was trying to explain to us about snakes. Some of them are dangerous. Just because they come in the name of Jesus Christ does not mean that they are safe. Just because they quote from the Bible does not mean that the things that they're saying is true. Just because they look good on the outside doesn't mean that they're not evil and dead on the inside. 
Some of these jokers are really terrible, awful, evil, malicious brutes to be avoided at all costs. Well, how do we know the difference? How do we know the good ones from the bad ones? How do we know the honest from the dishonest? How do we know the knowledgeable from those who are puffed up with self-knowledge? Fortunately, Paul gives us these descriptors. And so really what's happening here in the first nine verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is Paul is asking and answering two questions. He's asking and answering two questions. Question number one, what do these false teachers look like? What do they look like? How can we identify them? Uh, How do we reckon the difference between a perfectly harmless black snake and a morally defunct copperhead? How do we know the difference? The second question that he asks is, having understood then who the dangerous ones are, what do we do about it? What's our response? How do we move forward when confronted with a false teacher? So, what do they look like? How do we respond? Those are the two questions. Let me go ahead and start by reading this passage again, the first nine verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. (sighs) Paul, tell us what you really think of these false teachers in Ephesus. Spare us no detail. He goes on to say at the end of verse 5, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And then we find an assurance here in verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Well, obviously, the way that Paul starts here in verse 1, writing to his young protege Timothy to encourage and instruct him, He said broadly here things like fan the flame of faith alight in your life. And then specifically here, remember, there are people to whom you are ministering who are also being influenced by these terrible, awful, godless, false teachers. Broadly defined, they are set uh, apart from the word. They have not handled the word well. You remember that over the last couple of weeks? They have swerved from the truth is the imagery that Paul uses there. And in fact, he tells Timothy the exact opposite. Instead of swerving from the truth, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of God is the pivot point here on which direction the ministry will follow. Handle it well and you'll be able to minister in godliness disregard it or mishandle the word and you'll be able to foster a generation of people who are compelled toward evil acts and motivated out of evil motivations, evil hearts. 
So we saw the danger of ignoring or abandoning and misusing the word. And the way that Paul starts out in verse 1 is just understand that this task to which I have called you, ministering to a group of people who have also been ministered to by godless false teachers and confronting those false teachers, just a heads up, it's going to be really difficult work. Do you understand this? Right out of the gate, he says, um, understand this, that in the last days, and he never really tells us what the last days are, he obviously pictures this as having something to do with the era in which Timothy was living, but it also seems to be a trajectory in which we find ourselves today. In these last days, there will come times of difficulty. Timothy must have understood that. And maybe the reason why Paul is writing this is because Timothy has been a little hesitant to engage the false teachers and to engage the people who had been influenced by the false teachers because it was such difficult work. One of the reasons why it seems like Paul was trying to encourage Timothy so much was that Timothy needed that encouragement to go do what he had been called to do. This is hard work. This was hard work for Timothy. It's hard work for us. If you dare to do what Jesus has called you to do, to get mixed up in the lives of messy people, this is not easy work. Nobody is a clean slate. Everyone has lived under years of influence in either self-theology or bad theology or good theology, but you're starting with people who are influenced to a superlative degree who know things and think they know things, some of which come from the word and some of which come from their own malicious hearts. People who are broken. People whose faith has not yet been perfected. People who live in bodies that tend towards sinfulness, having not yet been glorified at the coming of Jesus Christ. This is hard work. All ministry has challenge embedded within it. I remember I was 17 years old and our youth pastor had asked me to accompany him and some students from the college just down the street on a missions trip to Albania. And I, and I felt like maybe there was the possibility thinking about the hint of the, just the chance that God might call me into ministry. And it was hot. Albania in the middle of summer, it's 110, 115 degrees. And so at night, a, a couple of us would sneak up to the roof and sleep on the roof because there was just a little bit of a breeze. And in this century-old orphanage in which we were saying there's no air conditioning, right? This, this was your only chance at some relief. And so we're laying out on the roof, and it's me, and it's our youth pastor and a couple other guys. And our youth pastor, Scott, said, oh, Chris, what do you want to do with your life? And... Um, I told him the complete truth. I wanted to make fat stacks of cash and date pretty women. That's what I wanted to do at 17 years old. Uh, but that also, there was at least a very small possibility that Jesus was calling me to serve him in ministry like this. And he goes, look, if God calls you into ministry, you'll know. But if he will allow you to do anything else, go do that. <laughs> He's a funny guy. And he was joking, but he wasn't completely joking because he knew what Paul was telling Timothy here in verse 1. Dare to do what God has called you to do, either in ministry like this or ministry of any kind. Engage 
messy, broken, sometimes faithless, sometimes wicked people, and it is going to be really hard. The first one I engage every day, I see in the mirror as I'm brushing my teeth, and I know how difficult he is to work with. <laughs> this is not easy work. And then he goes on to describe these people. You'll see there are 18 different descriptors. I think if I've counted correctly, 18 different ways he gives you to identify those false teachers who were in Ephesus and inherently the false teachers who still exist today. That game has only gotten richer. They have only multiplied, and they have multiplied by some great magnitude, even as the church went to the uttermost parts of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, such that the word of God now exists in thousands of languages, ministered to thousands of people groups across every acre on the earth. So also, false teachers have multiplied through the last two millennia, sharing a false gospel based on false readings of the word of God. Instead of glorifying him, they've glorified themselves. Instead of enriching the kingdom, they have enriched their own bank accounts. Instead of encouraging the relationships that are healthy and beneficial to the individual and the body, instead they have found ways to gratify themselves. And so we find 18 different descriptors. And I'm sure that as we work through these, you'll be able to identify some people who embody several of these descriptors. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And that's an interesting descriptor there. Not all false teachers look like false teachers. Some demons look like angels of light. They have the appearance of godliness, but with no power. You can imagine the most beautiful car on the planet. Someone offers to sell it to you for just a single dollar. Maybe a Lamborghini Aventador, something, 600, 700 horsepower. You pay the fee, you go to engage the car, nothing happens. You pop open the hood, and there is no engine. So are these false teachers. Gordon Fee, in talking about these guys, say, they liked the visible expressions, the aesthetic practices, and the endless discussions of religious trivia, thinking themselves to be obviously righteous because they were obviously religious. When we know that they weren't righteous, they only looked like it, until you bothered to look more closely wherein we found them treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. He then uses uh, two different illustrations here. Uh, these are illustrations that Timothy would have been familiar with. The first is something that he alludes to that's happening right here in Ephesus. He said, we have uh, in verse 6, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. This is almost assuredly something that's happening in Ephesus. This is almost assuredly something that's happening in Timothy's ministry specifically. That there were weak women who were being led astray by false teachers who were salaciously using and abusing these women in the church in Ephesus. If you're wondering how it is that they are being abused, I think you can probably go back to 1 Timothy and find some clues there. You'll find that there is 
a disproportionately high value placed in 1 Timothy on chastity. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's the importance of elders and deacons being the husband of one wife, only having a, an intimate relationship with one woman. And then he goes on to say in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy that it's important that uh, those who uh, profess to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ treat younger women as they would treat their own sisters with an extreme regard for chastity and honorability. You get a clue then of the kind of salacious nature of the work of the false teachers in the lives of these young women in the church in Ephesus. They're not building into them. They're taking advantage of them. They're not building them up with the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're tearing them down, using them for their own debased advantages. Timothy, you know what these guys are like. You've seen them in your very own church. And then he uses a second illustration. He talks about two men, Janus and Jambres. And you'll want to write here in the margin of your notes, if you're one of those pagans who writes in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 7. It's in Exodus chapter 7 that we first meet Janus and Jambres. Now, they're not named in the Old Testament. These guys pop up three times in the Bible. They are only named here in 2 Timothy. In fact, it's entirely possible that in the era in which this was going on in Exodus chapter 7, that their names were never known, and that someone came along later and said, oh yeah, we've got to name these two jokers. We're going to name them Janus and Jambres. Fascinating possibility. But the first time that we encounter them, we encounter, uh, encounter them in the court of Pharaoh. There's Moses, and there's Aaron, and they have confronted Pharaoh. Let my people go, Charlton Heston. You know the story, right? And Pharaoh says, uh, I see that your God is powerful and that Aaron here has this uh, magic uh, staff and that you can do all sorts of incredible things, but I've got some incredible people as well. And he calls out two of his court sorcerers. And he goes, all right, check this out. And he says, guys, take your staffs, do your thing. And the guys take and they cast their staffs down and they turn into snakes. Do you remember what happens next? Moses goes, is that all you got? Aaron, show them. Aaron casts down his pole, becomes a snake, and what does the good snake do? Eats the bad ones, right? Ah, foiled again by Aaron and his even more powerful uh, God, this Lord that he serves. All right, all right. Uh, well, here, I bet you've never seen anything like this, Pharaoh says. Uh, show them what you can do with the water there, right? They do their Egyptian sorcery, and the water begins to turn to blood. And then what do Moses and Aaron do? Uh, Lord, uh, show them your power. And the entire Nile River turns to blood. Is that all you got? It's an illustration of the powerlessness of evil and of the, in contrast, the power of a holy God. These were... People who looked like Moses and Aaron, right? They, they had a number of things that they could do. They were very impressive to the people around until you looked at them a little more closely. They were weak. They were evil. They couldn't stand up against the God of Israel. They couldn't stand up against his servant, Moses, nor Aaron. And so here in Ephesus, the same message is being relayed. Yes, they look like they're doing the same thing that you're doing, Timothy, but ultimately they're powerless. Just like Janus and Jambres imitated the things that Aaron and Moses did, but did so without power. So these guys are imitating what you're doing, Timothy, but without power. They're weak and foolish. 
And, and then he says this of them in verse 9, but they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain to everybody, as it was of those two men. Anyone who was in the gallery in Pharaoh's court and saw how Aaron and Moses interacted with Janus and Jambres knew who the obvious winner was, right? It'll be obvious. Trust me, Timothy, as you fan the flame of faith in your life, it will be obvious to everyone to whom you minister in Ephesus who really exudes the power of God Almighty and who's the fake, the false, the pretentious. So if we're trying to summarize what these guys are, I want you to write down three things. How do we understand false teachers? First, their hands are full of evil. Their hands are full of evil. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unappeasable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. What is inside manifests itself outside. You cannot be inherently wicked and not live a wicked life, nor can you be inherently righteous and live a wicked life. Those people so transformed by Jesus Christ who have put on the mind of Christ, who have been crucified with Christ and now Christ lives within them, end up living more and more until the coming of Christ like Christ. And those who are full of themselves live like themselves, following their own passions, following their own desires, following their own agendas, following their own trajectories, they can be identified by what they do. Fruit rotten on the vine. They have evil in their hands. Secondly, their heads are full of lies. Their hands are full of evil. Their heads are full of lies. Uh, take a, again a look at verse 7. Always learning and never being able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Their heads are full of lies. Uh, so again in verse 8, Janus and Jambres, so these men also opposed the truth corrupted in mind. They may have, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, many babbling words, many incoherent arguments. They, they may carry on in minuscule various facets of dogma for many, many years, over many, many sermons, and many, many discipleship intended relationships, but ultimately they do not know the truth. Let me say something to you that I've said to our congregation many times, that I've said to friends, that I've said to people in the community. Don't you ever take my word for it. And now uh, I spent four years in a Bible college. I spent another four years in a seminary, and I've been doing this for about 10 or 12 years now, right? I feel like I've learned some things. And yet, let me tell you, never take my word for it. If you cannot go to the Word of God and find coherence, with my words versus what God has revealed in this book, then don't believe me, believe the book. <laughs> they did not know the truth. They could not, for all of their machinations, for all of their schemes, for all of their wanderings, all of their babblings, all of their arguments, could not find the truth. I would hope that when it is all said and done, and I've come to the end of my life, and they have put me in the ground, and they're thinking about the headstone and what to write on that little piece of rock. They would say, you know, he was not particularly creative. 
uh, he wasn't particularly novel in anything that he said. He just seemed to repeat the book. I would be perfectly comfortable with that. You should as well. Give them the book. Herein is the truth of God. So first, their hands are full of evil, their heads are full of lies, finally their hearts are full of themselves. Their hearts are full of themselves. It's remarkable how much the word love is used in various forms here in just these first few verses. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, heartless, not loving good. You see how this is a game all about our affections, what we love? If we have been loved by God and we are loving God in return and of this overflow of this great Trinitarian love from all ages past, we'll live out of that love. But if we love ourselves and love money, heartless and not loving good, then we'll find this, and this is maybe the most damning condemnation in the entirety of this passage at the end of verse 4. They were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Instead of finding in him their chief pleasure their chief love, their chief virtue, obeying what Jesus says is foundational to the faith, that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What did they love instead? Me. I love me. Now talk about one of the most dangerous messages that you can hear on virtually any social media platform in 2020. Turn on a, turn on a show that is targeted for tweens. And we have one now in our house. What do you find over and over again? What is the great ethos of the age? Love yourself. And it is in direct contradiction to the word of God who tells you, love your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm not first. Uh, reverentially, I'm not even second. I understand well how to love me. And God calls me out of that understanding to love the people around me, uh, regarding them as even more important than myself. These are not people who love God. They don't love the people in Ephesus. They certainly don't love Timothy. They love themselves. And when you turn on the television, you see a false teacher, someone who preaches false doctrine out of a false handling of the word of God. Whatever they say about money, whatever they say about God, whatever they say about you, whatever they say about their ministries, foundationally, that's it. They don't love him. They love themselves. You wonder how Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn can accrue hundreds of millions of dollars and hoard it, not for the purposes of ministry, but for their own pleasure? They don't love God. They love themselves. You wonder how they can abuse and this has happened uh, not only in prosperity gospel circles, this has happened in evangelical churches across the spectrum, right? You wonder how they can abuse children? You wonder how they can abuse young women in churches? They don't love God, and they certainly don't love those people. They love themselves. That's it. That's it right there. Don't you understand don't you know what they look like? Their hands are full of evil. Their heads are full of lies. Their hearts are full of love only for themselves. So that was the first question. How do we identify those false teachers? The second question is maybe more important for Timothy's ministry. Understanding who they are, then what do I do about it? 
What's the trajectory? What's my response? Paul, what is my opening gambit in light of the evil that I am countered against here in my ministry in Ephesus? It seems clear. End of verse 5. I think it's the shortest sentence in the entire passage. Avoid such people. Now, it's important that we understand the such people portion of this. We're not talking about folks who are immature in the faith. That's not who we're talking about. People that Timothy is ministering to, new believers, people who were drawn out of Judaism, people who were drawn out of the Greco-Roman cults, people who were drawn out of a community where they had only been fed lies throughout the years, only been exposed to the pantheon of false gods, only been exposed to foreign theology, have never been introduced to Jesus Christ, and now at the infancy of their faith don't know all of the answers. We're not talking about those people. We're not talking about a people of infantile faith yet to have it fanned into flame by the truth of God. We're not talking about new believers. We're not talking about mature believers who have sinned, as even all mature believers do. And in contrasting their actions against the word of God, repent and pursue righteousness. That's not who we're talking about. Jesus makes it exceptionally clear throughout his ministry that he's come to minister like one who works in a hospital. The healthy have no need of my ministry here. It's the sick. And so he's come to minister to the sick. But that's not who we're talking about here. We're not talking about those who are sick. We're talking about those who are infecting others intentionally with sickness. We're talking about false teachers. So when he says, avoid such people, explicitly understand this. He is not talking about anyone who looks the wrong way, says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing. Their faith isn't fully blossomed into maturity. He's not including everyone here in a blanket statement. Avoid everybody who doesn't seem as holy as you perceive yourself to be. I've heard this verse abused maliciously in more than one church to construe a doctrine of separation that is not implicitly found within Scripture. So uh, anyone who plays cards, right? Anyone who drinks, anyone who smokes, anyone who dances, anyone who goes to the movies, anyone who roots for Michigan, right? Avoid such people. These are unholy, evil people, right? That's not the people we're talking about here. We're talking about false teachers, And even there, and this is where it gets more interesting, because you remember our passage last week when uh, Timothy was first introduced to what it means uh, to minister in a city and in a church and in a community where false teachers existed. Take a look again at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 to 22, right? So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love. Verse 23, having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, And then here's the shift, right? We move from the negatives to the positives. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Correcting opponents with gentleness. And then you see the possibility here. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and, and they may come to their senses and escape from the evil snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. So at the end of chapter 2, we find this commendation, Timothy, I, I want you to minister in gentleness and patience, enduring the evil work of evil people. And then in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, avoid such people. So which is it? Do I patiently and lovingly and gently engage them with the truth, or do I walk away? Maybe both. There are times when so empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will confront those who say false things about our God. You'll confront them gently and lovingly, but you'll confront them. With the truth, you'll confront them. With a heart that is hopeful for their restoration, you'll confront them. In the possibility that they will be withdrawn from service to the devil and made a servant of Jesus Christ, you'll confront them. And there are other times when you won't. They are so dangerous, so vile, that God will call you away from confrontation. And you will, by necessity, have to avoid such people. This draws on a really deep theological principle named after a philosopher named Kenny Rogers. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, Know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your... No, I'll stop. So how do you apply a passage like this? You're telling me that sometimes I need to engage and sometimes I need to avoid. How will I know which one to do? Well, this has been my application for this week. Every Bible study whether it's a sermon, personal devotions, whatever medium it takes, is essentially three parts. Observation, interpretation, application. That's how all Bible study is predicated. And I sat at my desk this week and I read this passage and I knew what was coming and I knew that there was some tension. How do I know? How do I know when to engage with truth and gentleness? And how do I know when to fold my cards and walk away? Here's my application from this week. Every day this week, I have prayed for you. And I have prayed this. God, give me and give them, give every last one of us the wisdom to know how to proceed in the way that most achieves the work that you have called us to do, that best serves the people to whom we have been given to minister and most glorifies your holy name. And I prayed it every day this week for myself and for all of you. This is not work for the faint of heart. It's not always simple. It's not always clear. It's not always tidy. But the word of God is clear. The word of God is exceptionally clear. 
And the God who reveals himself through this book empowers and wisens his people to do what he's called them to do in the manner in which he's called them to do it. Leave this place and go home and pray even as you are a servant of Jesus Christ for the wisdom and the courage and the knowledge to do what Jesus has called you to do. This is what I pray for you. Pray as well for yourselves. Father, before you sent out your disciples in Acts chapter 1, you said that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power, that he is our comforter, that he is our guide, that he is the wellspring of wisdom. Let us avail ourselves of the way that you have intended our sanctification as ministers of the gospel that is all about you. And then knowing what to do, give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.